Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. These brothers might become billionaires. Step aside, Collison brothers. Rory and Kieran O'Reilly are the next Silicon Valley siblings. After dropping out of Harvard, they've been behind some massive internet projects, like the largest gift generation site, Gifts.com, to the biggest crypto community, and a debit card company that broke social media. But it hasn't been all sunshine and roses for the brothers. The duo lost $80 million when their crypto project crashed, but they plan to make it back and then some with their newest venture, a fintech company that will blow your mind. In this episode, you're going to learn about why it's important to figure out monetization before you even build your product, the trade-offs of focusing on product versus distribution, and how a series of average ideas can lead to your billion-dollar idea. We are building the entrepreneurship podcast for young people. So please enjoy this episode. Alright, so these brothers are sick. What do you think? I mean, I so at first I was like, damn, like these guys have taken so many else. Like they have so much <laughs> talent. I've seen dudes with like 10% of the talent make 10x the money, but uh, it, I think with their new thing, they're they're going to win, and I I'm just foreshadowing because I don't want to get into their big brainy idea just yet. But I think these guys are geniuses. I just think they may have been playing in the wrong arenas like before this current moment and, and what they're working on now. Well, I think they've learned a lot, right, from just like the hardships they've over had to overcome. I mean, Rory is 29, Kieran's 28. It's not like they're old, right? Like still very yeah. young. It's like, and now they've got so many learnings that they can lean on. And while not many of the companies have been a financial success, these guys have crushed it when it comes to like actually getting users on their mm -hmm. platforms and getting people to actually enjoy uh, actually using the product. So I guess with the first one, gifts, right? Like that was the thing that got the ball rolling. And I just thought like, wow, did they have to be in the trenches for that one? Like you, they were telling us stories about how they were sleeping on their floor and like they couldn't even afford like an air mattress. Like <laughs> that's crazy when you think about like where, yeah, where the, these guys are at now. The gift factory floor. I mean, I wonder what that looks like, right? <laughs> um, yeah. Dude, just before we cut to them talking about that story, which the viewers you guys will love is, you know that scene in the social network when uh, Army Hammer's like, you know, the Winklevoss guy's like, He's like, why would he ever touch me? He's like, I'm 6'5", 250, and there's two of me. And yeah. it's like, with these guys, the same shit. It's like, there's two of them. It's like, bro, I, I mean, I could, we could be building so much shit if there was two of me. If there's two of me, it, like, I could have a billion dollar company. You know what I mean? So I don't know about that. I think two Michael Sakans <laughs> and they're just going to be clowning all day. I don't know if we're going to get anything productive out of them. <laughs> that, both got very lucky. We both went to Harvard. 
got there, absolutely loved it. This is 2012 and then Kieran was 2013 when we first went in. Started messing around with, with the GIFs. As you guys know, they're addicting and we couldn't get enough of it. So we dropped out, made a GIF website. We called it GIFs.com, able to snag a domain from someone, scaled it up. We actually never sold GIFs.com. We still own it to this day. And at that point, we basically had no money. It was very like crazy, um, like sleeping on the floor. Me and my brother, like a third guy, Rory and the other guy, like had like used one bed skirt between two people. And we had a hack to go viral. It, and this was probably one of the first of its kind. We called it like domain as an interface, where if you go to any YouTube video, you can put GIF in front of it. And we would grab the ID at the end of the video. And we would show you that video on our website now, GIF YouTube. But the user only had to put GIF. So we made a GIF of someone putting in GIF and then making a GIF of it. And that went super viral. Like back when Tumblr was big, it was like hundreds of thousands of reblogs, number one on Hacker News, number one on TechCrunch. It was like pretty ridiculous. We had like 20 million GIFs made, millions of registered users, all with GIF YouTube. And then we uh, like YouTube, this is back in the Google Plus days. They like re-Google Plused it. And we were like, holy shit, they're going to shut us down. We have to rebrand from GIF YouTube to something else. So then we rebranded to GIF YT, just abbreviated to YouTube. Eventually we raised like four mil for it. And then we bought just.com. Actually, we should have capitalized way more on it. Kieran, like, yeah, Kieran, so we like, charge Netflix like $5. <laughs> <laughs> like, my Netflix bill would be like 15. You know that saying that people talk about, which is like, if you're on Reddit, you're early. But if you're on like Twitter or LinkedIn, you're probably late. Uh, that's where <laughs> these guys were living, right? Like they are were the on, you know, the kind of the early Reddit crew, like just really nerdy. And they're just geeking out about like memes and like other nerdy stuff. Right. So that was yeah. kind of where these guys started. Um, but I think what surprised them is just how quickly the product took off, right? Like they had tons of massive names using this, this, uh, this platform. They had all the biggest companies out there using this. What was so hard with them is like, I feel like they just fucked up the monetization side of this. Like they were just charging a dollar because why not? Um, and I feel like now when I look at a bunch of, you know, these consumer plays, what differentiates them versus the ones that don't succeed oftentimes is they figured out the monetization strategy first, right? Like lots of people now know how to go viral, but you got to figure out how to make money from it. Yeah, I think the wisdom that you should just try and get as many users as possible and monetize later was a very like 2005 Zuckerberg-esque viewpoint that I think yeah. was still carried into those 2010, you know, investor meetings and such. So what they were saying is like, it wasn't even cool to have like charge for your product. Like that wasn't actually, money wasn't cool. Money didn't used to be cool, which is funny. It used to just be how many like daily active users you had. But well, it kind of puts a ceiling on your business, right? Like that's why when they say you, if you're going to go raise money, raise it on the sizzle, not the steak. Because like once they can actually have a benchmark to compare your company towards, it's hard to like get out of that box. Well, yeah, it's like, you know, in the social network when Sean Parker is like, no, like we don't want to advertise yet. Just like let it, (laughs) let it roll. Like like, keep, keep building up. Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, they were charging a very small dollar amount for a very yeah. small percentage of users. What I didn't understand is why they weren't running ads. Because I know there's tons of websites like this. Think of remove.bg. Think of uh, PhotoP, which is a Photoshop clone. There's all these sorts of creative 
tools online that are very highly trafficked and right. they all make like a few mil a year in ads. So, you know, there's some developer who built it, you know, just to kind of help people, you know, online. And now they're on the beach in the Bahamas because they have this, you know, seven figure business. I, I there yeah. is always a way to monetize attention. You know what I mean? But maybe absolutely, they just and I think that's why you shouldn't give up on a project either. Like what I've come to notice is that even if you know it's not working for you, there's so many talented operators that exist out there. So like you shouldn't just shut it down. I think a lot of these tech guys, that's what they do is like they they work on it. They're like almost obsessive about it, and then they can't find a way to make money, and then they just wrap that shit up. Um, but I was like, hey, you know, what are you guys doing with this? Like, is this thing still functioning? And they're like, yeah, you know, no one really works on it. I'm like, dude, someone would probably buy this from you guys for yeah, like a shit yeah. ton of money. Yeah, I think they should put it on micro acquire or something because <laughs> the, do <laughs> the domain name, the domain name alone is is very valuable. That but was what the you funny were saying part, is right? They were like, we were like, you could probably sell this company for like tens yeah. of millions of dollars. Like you have so much data here. And they're like, well, do you want us to buy it for tens of millions? Yeah. Like we'll happily He's like, sell you let it me to know. you. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, you let me know if you want to spend a few million on this domain name. But yeah, yeah I mean, what are you going to do with gifts.com? You know what I mean? It's also like any kind of new communication <laughs> file format is like, it can be a fad. So like gifts blew up and then they kind of, like fell down in terms of like usage and shareability and such, but there's still a big part of internet culture, right? There's still a yeah. mainstay. Yeah. Yeah. And so they were early to the gifts thing. Then it kind of, you know, phased out, but they were, the next thing they were early on was the crypto wave. So yeah. Ethereum run the clip, Mike. Yeah. So Kieran was on the, uh, Bitcoin talk forums in 2010. So he was super early into Bitcoin, like ridiculously early. And then after we dropped out of school, maybe like a year later, we became Teal Fellows. So we were acquainted with Vitalik, who co-founded Ethereum. And Vitalik was pitching Kieran one day in like a taxi cab and was telling him all about Ethereum and that he should buy it. And Kieran really wanted to put all of his money into it. He's like, Rory, we have to invest every amount of dollars we have into Ethereum. It's going to be huge. So we put out a project. We were pretty lucky to have like really good and sound legal advice on how to structure it sold a bunch of Ethereum. We usually, we usually don't talk about it that much anymore since it's, yeah, you could do small tasks and get paid for it. Okay. It was like decentralized mechanical Turk. It was a yeah. super hot project. <clears throat> and then as soon as we did the token sale, we were in a lawsuit from another company with the same name, which was really annoying. And then also right when we launched, I don't know if you guys remember this too, but Ethereum went down like 90% the altcoins like the ERC20 tokens went down 99.9%, .9%, our token included. I know these guys are really good at like sensing the next big thing, but dude, if I'm in the back of a taxi with Vitalik Buterin in like 2013, bro, I'm trying to get out. Like, yeah. I do not want to be in the back of the car with that dude. He looks like an alien. And like, the thing is, is that Kieran ran home to Rory and was like, we have to put our life savings into this. It's like, uh, what is it with the back of a taxi and just being able to pull off, you know, some big heist, like Adam Newman convincing uh, Satoshi-san to uh, invest in WeWork in the back of Dude, a taxi. Dude, it's all for it's minutes. all for the plot. They're just uh, they're looking for something that'll make it in their bi biography one day. It makes for a cool Dude, story, bro. Do you remember that TV show Cash Cab when you're in the back of the cab? Yeah, for sure. Like, I love yeah, that yeah, shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dude, they should do they should do one of those for business. I feel like that could be a good good series.
Yeah. Like, so by, these... by the time you arrived, you have to be an investor in their business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Community was such a big thing for these guys. And I feel like it's almost like a little cringe to talk about community because everyone says it, but no one quite knows how, no one really knows how to define it. Um, but I will give, you know, credence to the, the crypto community about this because they really found a way to band together. I have rarely seen someone get so excited on projects that don't make any sense, right? Like they'll find a new way to create a coin. And before you know it, yeah. there's like thousands of crypto nerds geeking out about it. Right. And they, yep. they all do the dumbest shit possible. But I think the big question is like, how do you take that sense of community and actually bring it to something where, you know, your project isn't just going to disappear because like some bad actors are going to, you know, make make that happen. Right. Like it's like some shit goes down and before you know it, you lose all your money on a coin. Yeah. I mean, look, every crypto project owner was like, we're going to have real utility. Like that yeah. was the buzzword. It's like real utility. Well, what they were doing is I'm pretty sure completing tasks was like got you more of their coin. So they actually had that piece down years before NFTs, years before the newer projects and that, you know, real world actions or interactions led to accumulation of the coin. Right. Um, and that's like, again, connecting it to the real world. It wasn't just a speculative bubble. Like it was like, this is powered by real shit. Um, and I thought that was another disruptive insight that they had, but I, I think they were just too early. I think if these guys had done an NFT project, they could project, they could have made millions. Like these guys could have, like, what if they had merged gif.com with like an NFT generator? Like, I don't know why, uh, these guys weren't able to figure out that big opportunity, but I mean, either way, they probably would have been wiped out in the most recent crypto crash. But I actually think they were yeah. even a little, they were, they've, they've, maybe they've always been a little too early. I'm not sure. A little too early. I would agree. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they have a great sense of seeing what's next um, when it comes to like new new technologies. And I think a, a big part of that is just kind of being in the, the, the right place and um, becoming the, the guys that they were, right? They became Teal Fellows and that's what introduced them to Vitalik. And that's what helped them see that that term was coming along, right? So by being these prodigal kids, you know, they've, they've been in the right rooms and communities to, to figure out, you know, what's going to come next. You, you know, they always talk about how you shouldn't play in competitive markets. You should, you know, find your blue ocean. But the more I think about it, I find that, like, it's probably a good thing to play in areas where there is competition because you know that's where the money is. There's already talent. There's already education around, like, what it is someone is doing. Um, I think that's the challenge, right? When you're too early, you kind of have to be the trailblazer to figure it all out. And then by the time you do, there's like 10 copycats just show up, they raise a bunch of money and then they start poaching your talent. And it, it almost feels unfair. It's like, damn, like we had to do all the heavy lifting and, you know, all these other guys kind of mooch off our success. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, being a second mover or third mover is a pretty good place to be. Because yeah. then you then you can just, yeah, I mean, poaching talent is like, an amazing thing that found young founders can do. It's like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to go take this guy who's built the exact thing that I want to do. You know, there's actually this great tactical strategy I learned from this guy, um, uh, Clay Ratterman um, at South by Southwest last year. And he was talking about how, you know, he was building some personal finance expense tracker. And what he would do is find developers that had tried to build something similar but failed. And then like brought them back on and giving them like, giving that idea a second chance at life. 
And it was like, these guys already have done this exact thing. It just like wasn't executed properly. So I think that's a pitch that you can make to people who have worked at a company that's maybe been successful in a new market and then like bring them over to your vision, right? Like none of these other EV companies would have been possible without Tesla, <coughs> right? Like Lucid Motors was started by two ex-Tesla people. It's like that first mover creates the talent and the mindset for the other companies to exist. So yeah. And yeah. also it's like when a new technology takes place, what happens is that you know, you're probably chasing after the people who look really, really good on paper, right? Like they went to the top schools, they got the top degrees, they are just mm -hmm. very credentialed in, in, in this new technology, whatever it is. But that means that like the people with hustle, maybe they just didn't have those opportunities, they kind of get overlooked. So you can almost like position your entire strategy, not on like, necessarily like, uh, the, the, the people that, you know, are, expected to win but rather like assemble a team of underdogs who are just super super hungry you're probably more likely to go farther with them than like the people who think you know they deserve to win um yeah so also just something kind of interesting about this absolutely so they made the pivot from from DeFi. i mean they lost like 80 million dollars which is just crazy to think about and they were never quite able to get the bag back but this whole time we've been foreshadowing what their next big play is and they're kind of um their segue into the fintech space, the traditional finance, um, was started with a debit card company. So we're going to play the clip of them telling the story of this, and uh, we'll get to their next idea soon. And we were kind of looking at the debit card market, but we made this debit card called Millions, and it was for folks who were getting 0% cash back. So I don't know if you guys know, but debit cards give 0%, a fat 0%. And our parents are hardworking folks, and they only use debit. It's not because they couldn't get credit. It's just because why, in theory, why spend money that you don't have? Why not just take it out right away? Like, why have this sort of risk? And we thought that the debit audience was wildly underserved. So we made this debit card. You could swipe your millions card and potentially win up to a million dollars. And it was all insurance backed. So the insurance company would pay the prize. We would pay them the premium. And we grew wildly on social media. We became like the largest fintech on TikTok with 1.4 million followers. Ooh. Grew to like 800K subs on YouTube, 250K on Twitter. People loved it. But the thing is, it was wildly unprofitable. We would see that our most profitable consumers had their card stored at Amazon, DoorDash, et cetera, and they were using it. And our most unprofitable consumers were using it randomly at like a 7-Eleven and then never using it again. So we would call people up and say, why don't you use your millions card online? And they would tell us a story about how hard it was to add their card everywhere. And we literally the first couple of times I was like, dude, it's not that hard. You just go into the website and add your card. I would like hang up the phone, like this person's nuts. Like, what are they talking about? Yeah. Then I heard it 20, 30 times in a row. And I was like, holy shit, I don't even use my millions card on Amazon or Verizon. Like I'm the biggest hypocrite in the world. Like, we're the co-founders of the company. I don't use my card everywhere. I went through the flow and I was like, this is hard. Amazon hides your payment details because they want you to do one click checkout. When do I ever go to Verizon? I never go to verizon.com. When will I ever update my card? I'll just use my old card. So then we made not to make it easier to add your card. And it's kind of like a merchant connectivity play. I don't know if you guys have seen Plaid before, but it's kind of like Plaid, but for merchant connectivity. And the first product is you could add your card wherever you want. You just log in, 
boom, your car is instantly there as the preferred default card. We raised 13 mil, Amex invested, Plaid invested. Uh, we're launching with some major top five banks early next year. Okay, so starting off with the debit cards, I actually thought this is an interesting idea. I feel like there hasn't been too much innovation in the debit card space, and it's because you know, it's not necessarily as lucrative. I feel like credit cards are just inherently predatory, right? Like crazy mm. APRs and like banks are kind of depending on you to either have late payments or not be able to make it. So you keep paying the interest, right? So mm -hmm. the incentives aren't really aligned for, you know, you to build good financial habits. So that's where debit cards ca come in. And these come, these guys came in with a good, good idea. The issue is like, they just couldn't get people to, um, use it right on paper everyone thought it was a great idea but like the customers just didn't really care for it what did you think yeah i mean look when you think of the credit card business there's a few different revenue streams right there's interchange fees which are pretty yeah. small you can't build a business on the back of interchange fees which is like when you're swiping the card at a terminal you get some of that because it's your card that's doing it the next is apr so yeah of course <laughs> when people are late on payments we know americans have massive credit card debt um, and third is annual fees. Debit cards have none of those things. I think they do have the in interchange fees, but again, those are really small. Um, so you're, you're kind of disadvantaged from the start in that you don't have those other revenue mechanisms. I haven't seen a debit card come into vogue that everyone's been like, oh my God, that debit gotta card. Get so I, debit card for gotta, sure. gotta get that debit card, right? But yeah. I actually think there is opportunity for that because we know that People are like Dave Ramsey, right? What he says, like no credit cards, only debit cards. You know, like my mom only uses a debit card, you know, and all this stuff. So it's like, you know, there probably is opportunity to innovate in that space. And the way they did it was a lottery system. The card was called millions. And like, you know, you could win a million dollars or something. And it was fascinating. They were paying an insurance company to, to make sure that like, you know, if they did have to pay out this money, they'd be okay. Uh, but it was a great shtick. And everything these guys have done has been a great shtick, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Whether it was, you know, the next big crypto coin and the community that's going to change the world or the the GIF, you know, turning a YouTube video into a GIF and the, the complexity of that. But they couldn't get first of wallet. And, you know, you and I know the space relatively well just by hearing our friends who are starting credit card companies talk. You got to be first in wallet, otherwise you're dead in the water, right? And first in wallet means you're a significant percentage of that person's monthly spend. So... Yeah, that was the challenge, and it's what's opened up their next business idea not. So, I mean, dude, let's dive into that one because what a genius idea to, to do this uh, API fintech platform that's kind of like Plaid. Yes, not API. So, essentially, this is like Plaid, but the B2B use case for this. So, they work with these big banks, these big financial institutions, and essentially enable you to have like this one one way access into being able to upload any of your credit cards on there and then they yep. uh spread it across all the merchants right so you essentially upload it uh to whatever bank you have they will then you know upload it to Amazon and every other place you would need to use that card right so very yeah. genius in in just like the conceptual aspect of it yeah um you know if people probably know what Plaid is so whenever you need to to connect your bank account to an online platform you can sign directly in with your bank and then get it access. It solved a huge pain point because I think what used to happen is they used to have to send like one cent to your bank account and you had to verify that it was the right one. Uh, so Plab's a genius company, multi-billion dollar business at this point. Um, these guys, it's like you get a new card with your bank and then you could automatically yeah, upload the payment information. So with one click, my card is instantly added to all the sites I shop at the most, which is uh revolutionary and it is like magic and 
I remember, I don't know if we're, we included this in the clip, but like they talked about how, uh, how they got by it, right? Like how they actually got people to, to join them, invest in their company and such. And it's like, they've never seen a better demo than this in their life, right? They're amazed. Um, yeah, it's, like, it's for sure. They're, they're depending on product like growth for sure. It's like, yes. let's just blow them out of the water when we show them this demo and it's going to do the selling for us. I yeah. think that like something we have to also give appreciation towards is like they have a stacked cap table, right? Amex Ventures is on this thing. Pl the yeah. uh, Plaid is on this thing, right? Like I couldn't think of two better partners for you to have if you're like trying to go build something in the fintech space. I know. I mean, you and I were big uh, proponents of like trying to get a strategic when we were trying to raise money for our future. And that's yeah. what opened up the door to the morning brew stuff. Right. Um, but we've seen it time and time again, from Griffin, who was doing his bars to being in Mondelez's accelerator to other founders having a, a strategic on board. Um, it really is a cheat code. And if you're thinking about raising money for your business, you know, having one or two institutional players or, you know, business industry players on board is not only a cheat code to maybe an acquisition, but also just opening doors. You know, you I mean the guy that there's their investors, the former like executive with Platt, right? Like he's yeah. already integrated yeah. with all the banks. So it's like, okay, well, um, we don't necessarily need to burn tons of money on cold outreach sales teams to try and get in, in touch with these customers. Um, you also mentioned something about being in FinTech. It's the sales cycles are so long, like for a bank to, buy a piece of software. It's, it's tremendous. But yeah. It can take saying, two to three years to, to close a yeah. deal with the bank. It takes forever. But what they were saying is they're solving such a core problem because they really understand the bank's business, right? The bank's business is like you being retained as a card holder, right? You spending money on your card, right? And they literally like make that, that's their priority. Like they, they, they literally contribute to the bank's bottom line necessary equation for revenue growth sustainability yeah i agree right they're covering retention they're covering like revenue growth all of the things that you know a bank would want to hear but the challenge is is like they're you know essentially being exposed to very sensitive consumer data points right like you know they're not only getting access to your financial cards but now they're in charge of like giving this to third parties like Amazon. And they're also like in charge of like getting this information to them. Right. So I don't know if a bank is just like, okay, this makes a ton of sense. We're going to start working with you. I feel like that was something that I wasn't fully convinced in. I don't know if you can just like brute force your way into getting them to use you. Um, even if the product is great, like the, just because of the security challenges involved. Yeah, well, we got some a little bit of data. They've raised 13 million. We don't know how many yeah. customers they have. You know, we don't quite know how far along they are. But I think there's significant red tape when you're dealing with customer info on this level, right? One hack could kill not, could kill them. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. You know, Equifax that that hack, they're too big to fail. That's all that you know. That's your credit data. It's the most sensitive information in the world. But you know, being a small company with only you know 15, 20 employees, wow, you got to be careful. Um, didn't they mention CISO, like a chief information security officer or something along those lines there? Oh yeah. I think they got their CISO from Plaid or something along those lines. Right. So like they paid special attention towards that topic by bringing in someone who like had already gone through the regulatory approvals and such, which is another cheat code, right? It's like, um, 
Sam Ratner bringing on the executive who'd already worked with the, the tribes and the, yeah, all the gaming. Yeah, because, yeah. yeah. you know, at the end of the day, they want to buy from people they've known for, for decades or yeah. have worked with on multiple business transactions and deals together. Yeah, I mean, dude, like people don't want to buy from the upstart kids, like the Harvard dropouts. They want to buy from people they bought from before and who are people who are like them. My friend was telling me this. He's like, you know, I see a lot of opportunity in construction software. And I'm like, yeah, yeah you're probably right. Um, that makes sense to me. And then he was like, but they don't want to hear from some slick Silicon Valley Harvard dropout. They want to hear from people like me who use their hands and who are in the field and who understand the space. So, you know, that's that's important when you're ever thinking about bringing on a salesperson, a regulatory person, what, what have you. Make sure they're like the person, they know the people they're selling to and they're like the person they're selling to because I think that goes a long way. So these guys, everything they've done has been like, a great product and then some kind of magic trick that just blows people away. And, you know, whether it's a, you know, a debit card that could win you a million dollars or, you know, the, the gift website that can turn a YouTube video. It's like magic, the O'Reilly effect, I'm calling it. <laughs> um, this whole approach of like, do you build a great, like, should you be trying to create distribution for like a semi average product? And just like being really good at that, or is it better to be really good at product and then the marketing is so much easier? You know what I'm saying? Like, I think they seem you have to have the get... best of both worlds. Yeah, right. Yeah, they they seem like you either have a really good product, spend all your time on product, and you have shitty marketing, or you spend all your time on marketing of a shitty product. Right. But they seem to have both. Marketing can be fixed. Like, I think that you can always build a better flywheel, but if the product sucks at the end of the day, like people are going to churn, right? Like why would businesses continue to use you? They may use you if you're the only option in the market, but if it's that lucrative, you're going to see competitors. And then like the highest quality product will win. The issue is like, we talked about this in the last episode, but when it comes to just pure play marketing, like there, again, there's no defensibility there. There's no moat. Like you're every, every process or like tactic or strategy that works and people know about they just replicate so at the end of the day like your product has to do the talking for you and i feel like mm -hmm. on this show we probably need to give that more appreciation like probably our own self-feedback you know it's funny we talk to a lot of people who build companies in really regulated spaces and almost always it's mission driven it's like we want to do something big i believe that I also think there's another component that means like if you build in a big space and it's growing, you're going to make a shit ton of money. But every person I've talked to who's built a company in the regulated space says, I will never build a company in a regulated <laughs> space ever again. Don't you think that's funny? Yeah. Yeah, it definitely does. Because for people who aren't in regulated spaces, they're like, damn, like I wish I didn't have so much competition. And then for people who are in our regulated spaces, like, damn, it'd probably just be easier to wipe, eat everyone else's lunch with a better yeah. product and better team. Yeah. As opposed to dealing with some bureaucrat in Nebraska who's like gatekeeping some shit. Well, it must um, be so frustrating too. Cause it's like, you know, you're, you're trying to push things along and you're trying to make progress, but someone yeah. is just stopping you and you just have to kind of sit there and wait for them. Like, you know, as you twiddle your thumbs as like, yeah. you know, waiting for someone to get back to you and say, yeah, you can go ahead and do this or yeah, we'll work with you. Yeah, probably so yeah. frustrating. Well, dude, I just want to wrap on this episode, and I love that point by saying, "Gosh, you know, you know, for you and I and our journey, and for whoever else is listening, you know, a lot of the time your first business is something that's relatively easy to get into. It's something with a low barrier to entry. But my golly, 
if you can combine an amazing product with amazing sales, I mean, you could be a fucking billionaire, right? I spent three years of my life saying a, tic- a TikTok page was the best thing since sliced bread. And people believe me. So, I mean, if, if we could, you know, create something that is just like this, like magic in whatever industry, gosh, it's fucking game over. So that's what I'm thinking about is, you know, if I can bring the O'Reilly effect to, to my next company and I can bring yeah. my sales abilities to a fabulous product, we can have it all. Right? Agreed. I would also done, say if I'm you're done talking about trade-offs, I'm done with trade-offs, good marketing, good product, no. We're going to have it all. We're going all in on product. We're going I would all also in. say, yeah. if you're building your first company, try to avoid a regulated space. Like, there are levels to this stuff. Work on something easy. Work on something that you can get a quick win on, and then tackle the bigger problem down the road. Like, there Damn, will be really tuning, as you figure it out. You're really tooting our own playbook here, but that's what we do on the show. We that just is what we do. Our, we cram our own kind of story down your throat and hope that you guys like it. And this is <laughs> this is this is coming from you, Simi, who tried to build a uh, business inside of airports. So with that, <laughs> I'm never going to live with that one down. <laughs> with that, with that, everybody, thank you for listening to our future podcast. Uh, make sure to subscribe on YouTube sub- or leave us a review on any of the audio podcast apps. We love doing this every week, and uh, we'll be back with you guys next week. Um, Holidays are approaching. It's a good time of year to stay frosty. Love it. Stay frosty.